Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We've been talking confident faith, and I just want to make one uh, caveat, because I like doing these kind of messages that are apologetic in nature. Uh, remember, 1 Peter, 15, uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should always be ready, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us, but yet with gentleness and respect. So you can see the balance of what Ephesians calls truth with love. And so we're supposed to, to speak the truth in love, yes, but we're supposed to be ready but I want to make sure we understand something. Like just knowing all the right answers, even if I would memorize this entire book, and I'm working on it, I don't think it's possible, but I am working on it, and I'm uh, not very far in comparatively to how many verses are in there, but I'm, uh, I'm far enough, as far as it can be. Even if I would memorize this entire book, that would not save me. That doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. That's it. Okay, so the devil knows all the right answers in here. Well, most of them. I, I imagine there are certain things that are hidden from him, much like the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Didn't see those coming, did he? No. But the basic answers about Jesus, he'd probably be able to, to teach one of the best apologetic courses on God and the existence of God and the existence of Jesus that anyone could teach. And that would be the devil. So what is my point, that we shouldn't learn this? No, we should. Scripture commands us to, to learn it. We're supposed to learn it. We're supposed to grow. My point is you will miss out if you don't discover the person of Jesus for yourself. And by discover, I do mean if you don't respond to the person of Jesus yourself. It is an invitation. And, and that's my prayer and hope as I was getting ready this morning and, and yesterday. It, Lord, help every, all of us see, even the ones who've been believers for some time, even the ones that were growing, help us to continue to see the invitation. All right, so um, know what you believe. Foundation of a confident faith is built on a world, uh, biblical worldview. We talked about that last week. Um, and by the way, this is going back to our cruise ship to battleship, and this is our discipleship target. And you'll see on there, learn about God and learn to know God. That's the balance we're trying to strike here with this message series, but all the time. We're, we're trying to uh, disciple and train our minds, but also in the private and in the public, we're trying to get to know God better, and that's very, very critical. So we looked at worldviews last week, origin, problem, solution, that's the basics of any worldview, and then identity. And those are the four really probably the biggest things that our worldview is, is bleeding into our lives or is pouring into our lives, and it's, and it's actually instructing our thoughts, our values, and our behaviors. So a lot of our dysfunctional behaviors, if you would ask yourself, do those prayers of examine like David did, Lord, search my heart, you would probably go back and find out some of those you know, things in your life are built on an unbiblical worldview. But we're not going to talk just about worldviews today. Today, we're going back to, oh, whoa, 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 we're not ready for that yet. <laughs> Who is that guy? <laughs> I had to put a picture of books, and I figured, why not also put a picture of me with the books? <clears throat> but anyways, today, like I said last week, we're going to talk about the resurrection. This is part of our worldview, and it's important that we understand the implications of the resurrection. Some, some will say, well, why does it matter? Even if the resurrection was proven false, even if this was proven false, that doesn't make my faith null and void. That's what we're going to be looking at, because I would say it does. But uh, I had some inspiration for the message today. Um, I would encourage you, if you've got kids 
or you've got young ones, I have the notes online. You can download the notes. Just go onto the website, take a look at them there, and you can look at them. I'll go through these points with you, but I would encourage you to go through these points. Talk about them at your dinner table. Talk about them with your friends. Rehearse them. Get them into your soul so that you are able and ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Something like the resurrection demands a response from all of us. And all of us will have to give an account on how we responded. Will we reject or embrace the man on the cross that rose from the dead? Every knee will bow. Everyone will give an account to how they answered that. So it's important. Anyhow, these are the books. We have uh, The Case for Jesus by Brent Petra and The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus there as well as C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Those three books, I am pulling strands out and lots out of here for the making of this message. There we go. Moving on. 1 Corinthians. By the way, could you see how excited I was there? I was saying, this, these are good books. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. I, I really need help in the head. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, I, <laughs> I'm counting on resurrection from the dead and the Lord bringing life into here too. All right. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And this is important. Because if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So it's not just me standing here doing something vain. Then your faith is in vain. That's an incredible statement Paul makes. And I would actually encourage you to go in your Bibles this week and read that whole section. The whole section is really good. And it'll give you a lot of context of what he was all including in that and what he was fighting against. But he goes on to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. That's a serious charge. James says, not many of you should desire to be teachers. For those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. There's a lot hanging on whether I'm teaching you the truth or not, and whether you teach others truth or not. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So let's look at the importance of the resurrection. Richard Dawkins says, if the resurrection is not true, Christianity is null and void. I'll give him that. Paul said that first. Paul agrees with him. I would agree with him. If the resurrection is not true, Christianity becomes null and void. Skeptics will, uh, skeptics will charge all sorts of things. That Jesus is a myth? They'll say that. I've heard that lots. He's a legend. He's a myth. He's not a real character. He's not who he says he was. He was just a good teacher. You've probably heard this, right? He was just a good man. He was just a fill in the blank. There were lots of other, you know, Jesuses that rose up and people that claimed. And just because there's lots of other false Jesuses, that means that obviously our Jesus is fake. He's fake news. No one can really know. Have you ever heard that one? No one can really know. Okay. All right. Well, I don't actually think we can get away with that. You know, something I, I hear off, you know, too often, because I, I understand atheism to a point. I understand it in the sense of I understand that they don't believe in God. I do. I don't know how much I buy into that. Not in the sense of a belief system, but more in the sense of I, I actually think what is plain to see about God is plain everywhere. I, I, I think all of us are confronted with a choice. And I'm not saying it's an easy choice, but we are confronted with a choice. And too often I hear things like, well, like... I would believe if someone showed me something, or I would believe if God revealed himself to me, or I would believe if I could know it was true. But you know what the common thing I hear or I watch with statements like that? It's followed up with inaction. 
It's followed up with inaction. So do we actually want to know what is true? Or are we afraid of the implications of truth? And we would rather follow our secular worldview, which says we are God. Live for yourself. Do what is happy. And I think that is the thing that really drives a lot of us. And that's why it's important for us to understand that our faith is based on something that's true. Now, can I prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt? And there's no one in here I'll just prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. No. I don't know that I could prove anything in history beyond a shadow of a doubt. We could talk about George Washington, and you could say, well, he could be proven. And I'd say, no, that was all made up. I mean, if I want to dig my, you know, my heels in the sand and say it's all made up, I can do that. I can't prove. But I can tell you that there are really good reasons. In fact, there are better reasons to believe what we believe than to believe anything else. All right. So, importance of the resurrection. Let's look at why it matters. It was the focal point of the disciples' preaching. These, these points I'm just taking straight from the case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very good book. But uh, many doctrines were based on it. That's why it matters in Scripture. It's not like a small thing. This idea of even if he didn't raise from the dead, he was still a good teacher. He was still... No, 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 no. No, no. No. This is, a, this is big. This is a foundational underpinning. We need to, we need to believe this. Doctrines were based on it. Belief in the resurrection is required... For salvation. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay, so it secures for us an inheritance in heaven. It also teaches that. And if it did not occur, we are still lost in our sins. We just looked at that Bible verse. All right, that's what the Bible says about the resurrection. It was also the evidence that Jesus provided to validate his teachings. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And if we had lots of time, I would just dive into this, but we know, right, Jonah was rebelling. Now, Jesus obviously didn't rebel, but he was thrown into the sea, eaten by a fish. There's some, there's two different ways we can look at that. Some say he was alive for three days and then came back out alive. Others say, according to some of the passages in there, because he went down to Sheol and the gates closed over him, that he actually died in the belly of the fish and then was, he came back to life on the third day, which is pretty wild. Either which way, Jesus said, this is the sign. And the sign was, I will be dead for three days. I will come back to life. Jesus himself said, that's the sign that I am who I say I am. So all of those commands... I mean, he said some pretty outrageous things, if that's not true. But if it is true, I don't think any of it's outrageous, then it's merciful and kind, and he's showing us the way to him and the way to heaven. But if it's not true, it, it would be harsh. I mean, he said things like it would be better to cut off your hand than for it to cause you to sin. He said it would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone on your neck than to cause a little one to stumble. That's how serious he sees sin. That's a message for another time. Anyhow, let's take a look at this. And lastly, the apostles used it as the primary evidence that Christianity was true. We don't have time to go into that, but Acts, uh, where do I have it here? I had the, the quote, Acts 17, 2-3, if you want to look at it later. Um, that's, that's exactly what they were building their case for Christianity on. Remember, they had the Old Testament already. So the, the, the apostles were building this new faith that Christ was building through them using the resurrection as a proof, as a proof for building this new faith. See, we're so many years removed, we don't see it as the thing that everything hangs on anymore. But that's how it was built. It was built on that. C.S. Lewis 
wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, you cannot conclude that he is merely a good teacher. He's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. And that's very, very famous. You've probably heard those before. Uh, but that was his conclusion. I think it's a mere, yeah, it is a mere Christianity. And so we'll take a look at that. Lord Jesus was who he said he was. By the way, if he is, if you believe that, this is why at the end of the service, you have to go back to what you know. If that first one is true, that means he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. That means that all of his warnings about those who choose to reject him, how they will spend an eternity away from him in hell, a place of their own choosing, because he's merciful and offers them a different path. In fact, he says that I desire none should perish. He's done everything possible to save people from going there. But if he is who he said he is, if that's true, then so is what he says is coming. Right? That's logical. Makes sense. All right. Or he's a lunatic. He thought he was God, but he was delusional. He just didn't know. Right? Be like, if I thought I was a cat, and you guys would say, you're not actually a cat. Or if I thought, no, never mind. I'm not going to go with that. Liar. How about that? Jesus knew he was not God, but said he was, and that would make him evil. That would make him evil. Some type of deranged leader of a cult. And as Brent Petra points out, and this isn't a new thing, but there's actually a fourth category, and that is legend. They are stories. And this is a fourth category that, that actually a lot of skeptics use. They just say, well, sure, okay, he believed, he believed he was, and people believed he was, but it's a story. It's a story. It's just a legend. Right? I mean, lots of stuff is created on legend. When you look at things, I think, uh, like St. Patrick, there's the true story, and then there's the legend built on top of it. Right? There's other things, like King Arthur, probably a real person. That seems like it's pretty conclusive, but there is loads of legend built on top of that. So then that's what they claim. This is no different. How is it any different? People claim they see UFOs, and they claim all sorts, that they're seeing Elvis. So then he rose from the dead. Well, it's just kind of the same thing. They, they really love him and they kind of claim it and some really believe it and some really don't. But all of us who are, you know, smart enough and wise enough and old enough and all that mature enough, we know better. That's the legend one. Okay, so let's first rule out legend. But before I will say something, if in fact we can look at the resurrection and say it looks reasonable and more so, it looks actually quite probable in any court system we would determine that it's true if that happens. Then that demands something of me and it demands something of you. And you can't not choose. You might say, well, I'm not ready. That is a choice. We either choose to embrace the man on the cross who lived and died and rose again as the Son of God who will one day come back and rule on the new heavens and the new earth. We either choose to embrace him or we choose to reject him. That is the basics of our choice. We've been talking lots about that the last two weeks, haven't we? So let's look at the evidence. So evidence for the historicity of Jesus, his life, and death. Because we'll start there because we'll, we want to eliminate the legend part, right? Let's just eliminate that. Is he real? 
and I have preached these things before, I'll probably try to go through these basics at least once a year because we need to have it in us. This is part of being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks us. And by the way, sometimes in conversations, bring it back to things like the resurrection. Creation and resurrection, those are two things that God has given us in here, and it's biblical, to use as an apologetic. And he's given so much evidence, and it's so reasonable, people have to give a response. It's whether they want to or not. And don't be, don't be pig-headed about it, obviously, but just keep bringing it back gently, keep bringing it back to the resurrection. What do you think happened? When you look at the evidence, what do you think? What do you believe about creation? How do you think so much can come out of nothing? If it's random atoms smashing together and coming together, how did we get here? Why, like, why do we think the way we think? And why do we have values the way we value? Doesn't it seem more like there's some type of intelligence behind all of this, guiding it in a direction? Anyhow, I digress. That's not part of the point. Four gospel accounts. 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We're just talking about uh, the gospels here with an astounding 2.6 million pages of biblical text. You let that sink in? 2.6 million pages of biblical text. Some of these manuscripts are small and fragmentary, so they're tiny, but the average size of a New Testament manuscript is 450 pages. So if you look online on those online notes, I have provided links and books and that kind of stuff, so you can look it up for yourself, so you can strengthen your faith. I'm just giving you the Coles notes this morning. This is important as it speaks volumes towards the reliability of what is written. It speaks volumes towards the reliability of what is written. Because, yeah, some people will say, well, there's minor discrepancies. That's fine. In any historical or piece of uh, historical evidence that we, we uh, will agree on or teach in schools, I'll get to one in just a moment, there is, there is no problem with having some discrepancies. It was oral tradition and things were passed on and memory. But the more evidence you have that supports the stronger the case for the actual fact. So the Bible itself has a lot of evidence for it being true and not just made up a long time later. Besides that, the Gospels themselves were dated within, some will say 60 to 70, some will say 50 to 70, and some will say 30 to 70 even earlier. So somewhere between 5 years and, and, uh, or, or 5 AD and 70 AD, so Jesus living to about 30, uh, 33, 35 is where the kind of estimate, 33 is what we get from Scripture, right? But if he's living that long, that means we have like within, you know, five years to 30 years of his life. And this is why that's important. If you were going to write up a bunch of legend, let's say, you wouldn't do it when everyone, all the witnesses are still alive. Can you see the problem with that? Like, if you're, if you're just writing this total garbage, and it's just made up, and it's legendary, and you're saying, like, imagine someone writes about me. I don't know why you would, but you write about me, and then you talk about how I could fly. Like, if I passed away, the, or so, if someone wrote that, if you read that right now, would you believe it? No. And if it started spreading around as truth, wouldn't even someone in here stand up and say, okay, guys, that's ridiculous. I've seen him. I know him. He can't fly. Does that make sense? Okay, we don't have any evidence. They don't have any evidence refuting the claims. Or refuting at least his death and his life. There is evidence of people refuting his claims. That, that I will correct myself on. That's for sure. People did refute his claims. Okay, this is important. Now, 42 authors. 
42 authors mention Jesus within 150 years. One of the, one of the um, charges that skeptics will make is, well, if really he was this guy that they say, wouldn't there be more written about him? Like if really he made, it, like if he was real and he was who he said he was, more people would have written about him. Okay, so 42 mention Jesus within 150 years. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? But I guess without something to compare it to, you don't even know, <laughs> right? How would you know? Like, is it incredible? I don't, I don't fully know. We're going to look at that in a second. Let's look at who those 42 authors are. Nine authors of the New Testament, 20 Christian writers outside the New Testament, four heretical writers, won't mention who those are right now, but they still mentioned him, <laughs> nine secular non-Christian sources. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence within a very short period of time after Jesus' life and his death confirming that he was real, that he lived, that he died, and even that he had an empty tomb. In fact, it goes beyond that. There's evidence even confirming uh, from the secular sources that he was doing magic. We call those miracles. Right? So even if you didn't believe in him, there was not a denial of him doing miracles. None of those things came in as legend after the fact. So that's important for us to get. Josephus, about this time, lived Jesus a wise man. This is one of the things he wrote. If indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not dispersed. He's just writing about this Jesus. Didn't actually believe in him. Interesting, he also wrote about Tiberius. We'll get on to him in just a moment. Right, so we look at that. Now, one of the objections that often comes here is we shouldn't believe the Bible writers because they believe in Jesus. Now, I want you to work this through because that might seem like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You believe, so I don't believe what you have to say about it. Okay, that'd be like saying, so, like, if I witnessed a crime, would I be a good witness or a bad witness? Well, I believe he did it. I believe Hector did it because I saw him do it. And then you would say, oh, you saw him do it. I don't trust your, your, your testimony. Do you see how absurd that is in a line of reasoning and thinking? It doesn't even make sense. Because you have to go to the next part, and then it's answering, why would I have motive to lie about it? Now, there are three major motives that drive lots of our dysfunctional behavior and lots of lying in the world. Money, Sex and power. Those are probably the biggest ones right there. Money, fame, power, sex, I guess could also be on there. Those drive a lot of bad things in the world. They do. Okay? That, the desire for more. The problem is the eyewitnesses were going around proclaiming that what they saw was true, and they were suffering for it. They didn't get any of those things. Right? Now, if it was just me claiming this, if it was just me, well, then you could say, well, yeah, but you have mon you, money. You're getting paid to speak. True. And you want to provide for your family, so you have motive. You could argue that with me, but you can't argue that with them. None of them got money for it. They lost money for it. Do, do you see the difference? See, that's important that we work ourselves backwards that way and really kind of break apart those objections. Next objection. We can't trust the witness, uh, the historical accounts because they were written decades after Jesus lived. Okay, so now we'll go back to that. Remember I said 42 authors? Let's talk about another famous person that lived during the time of Jesus. Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius. You guys know who that is? You probably learned about him in school, right? Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor. He had 10 authors mention him with, uh, within 150 years of his life. 10. One of them being Luke. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's kind of funny. One of the sources that confirm his <laughs> reliability is Luke, the one who wrote right in our Bible. Anyways, but Luke, Luke, you know, they teach about him. Go type in Tiberius Caesar online and see how many conspiracy theories you can find that he wasn't real. None. Oh, well, maybe you can, I'm sure, but down the, down the pages. But Britannica, any kind of credible source, has no problem believing in that. That's plenty enough evidence. Ten sources within 150 years, that's, as, that's pretty much the gold standard. It's as good as him being here today. And so it's good enough for him to be taught about in schools, that he was a real person, and of his exploits and what he did and accomplished. All of that, it's good enough to be taught in schools. Jesus has 42 authors within 150 years. Maybe they should be teaching about him in schools. Amen. If we're going to be consistent. But that's not the way things work. We know that. <sighs> Important. Now, no historical accounts refuting Jesus' life and death in the earliest manuscripts and records. All the refutes come way, 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 way later in what we would call legend. <laughs> right? If you want to flip their terms on them. What we would call legend. Now you're happen it's happening way, 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 way after the fact, but no one can challenge it. That's the only thing we find refuting it. What people were refuting, the secular sources, were his claims. No one refuted the life and death and even the empty tomb. They just refuted the claims. That's important. So if, he's a if he is a historical figure, then we're left with C.S. Lewis's three points, and that is he's either Lord lunatic, or liar. So evidence for the resurrection. Let's take a look at that together. First one, empty tomb. Okay, so empty tomb is a major, is a major piece of evidence for the resurrection. It is. Now, because uh, the first point we're going to look at here is Josephus. And he is, and this is why it's important, he's, a, he's, a, he's an upper me uh, member of the Sanhedrin. So he's part of the group that condemned Jesus to die. So let's say the disciples are trying to create a legend or Christian writers later are trying to create this legend and, and trick people into following. Using sources like this that would have been against you is a terrible idea to build your case. Because the moment you publish something, if it's inaccurate and you're using the opposition's names, they're going to refute it. Make sense? People will have known him. They will know him. He'll have family. He'll have descendants. He'll have friends. He'll have people that will say, absolutely not. There's no way he would have been a part of that. And yet, there are no such claims. And, and uh, so we'll go to second. Uh, the disciples record in the scripture that it was women that were the first people that came upon the tomb. Now, obviously we would not say this anymore, but women at the time could not testify in court. So again, they were seen as unreliable for, for testifying. Unreliable witnesses. So if women are seen as unreliable witnesses, it's a terrible idea, again, if you're going to create something, a, a false narrative, to start with, it was the women who saw it. Does that make sense? You're following the line of reasoning? Because when we work ourselves through it, we're left with some pretty easy conclusions, I think. And lastly... It's the Jewish leaders, okay? So their response is recorded in Matthew 28, and it actually says they didn't refute the, the empty tomb. Uh, they started coming up with ideas, like the disciples stole it. So this was already refuting. Now you might say, yeah, but that's in Matthew. Yeah, it's in Matthew that was written within a short period of time after Jesus' death. 
Meaning this made them look bad. If they were, like, if there was any contradictions or errors in what was being written, they would have corrected the record. They would have corrected the record. All right, conclusion. The site of the tomb was known to Christians and Jews alike. If it wasn't empty, there would have been no way for the early Christians to claim it was empty. There would have been no way. People would have said, no, the, the tomb is there. They would have, you know, brought out the remains. Like, here, look, we have the remains, guys. You're saying that he's, the tomb is empty. We have bones. We have a body. And yet no such claims are recorded anywhere. Not in secular, Christian, Jewish, doesn't matter. No such claims. So, then we're left with, where'd the body go? Right? Where did it go? It's quite, it's quite reasonable for anyone, whether you believe here or not, to conclude, even with a little bit of evidence, and go check the links, go check my sources, that's fine. Um, and then check those books too, because they source even better than I do. <laughs> and I source them. See how I did that? Piggybacked off their work? Smart, I think. Anyways, um, the point is, we're left with, an, uh, you know, the next logical question, and that is, who took the body? How did Jesus' body disappear? Now you might say the disciples would have had a lot of motive to, to steal the body. Right? I mean, that's what the Jewish leader said. The disciples took it. It makes sense. Think about it. Like, he was their leader. He claimed he was going to die and then raise again. They knew that the claim was he was going to raise himself back from the dead. They knew that. So they didn't want to look dumb. That, you're tracking. This actually makes sense so far. It would be very human for them to go and take the body and say, see, we were right. The only problem is they don't live in a free country where you can just claim whatever you want and believe whatever you want. They got killed for, for saying they believed what they believe. I think it would be hard to get one person to die for something that they knew was a lie. But almost all of them died for what they believed. And many others died for what they believed and what they said they saw, the resurrected Christ. The disciples doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that they would have stolen the body and then been willing to die for it. It makes no sense. It would make sense that they would tuck their heads in shame and go and move somewhere else to try to rebuild their new life out of embarrassment. That would make sense. But die for a lie? That's a stretch. The next question would be the Jews, the Jewish leaders. They, maybe they stole the, bi uh, the Bible, the body. Well, they wouldn't have stolen the, the, uh, the body. I keep wanting to say the Bible. Huh. The body. There. They wouldn't have stolen the body. <laughs> Shoot! Sometimes. This is what happens when you wake up early. And <laughs> Anyhow, they wouldn't have stolen the Bible. Ugh. Okay, it's coffee time. <laughs> oh. Well, and for some reason the Lord still chooses to use me. I have no idea why. The Jewish leaders would not have had any motive to steal the body. Why would they? It would have proven that they were a liar. It would have proven them false. 
They wouldn't have risked that. I mean, think of what they were willing to do to, to kill Jesus. They lied to kill him. They wanted to stamp out this movement. They wouldn't have taken the body and caused the very thing that caused it to explode into what it is today. They would never have done that. That makes absolutely zero sense. Now that leaves us with, it could have been the Romans. And why would the Romans have done it? Remember that all of the guards there, some of you will know the story and some of you don't. If you don't, don't feel bad. But what happened to the guards that were watching the tomb? Does anyone know? They were executed for failing their job. That's what happened to guards that failed their job in the Roman Empire. Do you think they had motive to do it? Would they have done it for a bag of coins? Knowing what was at risk? Doubtful. Doubtful. So, what's the logical alternative? God raised Jesus from the dead, just like Jesus claimed would happen. And if that is true, then it demands a response from you and from me. Not a one-time response, a daily response. It matters for how I live. It matters for how I parent. It matters for what I do when I'm by myself. It matters for how I spend my money, how I spend my summers. It matters for how I feel about the church. It matters when I'm struggling with forgiveness. It matters when I'm stuck in sin. It matters and it demands a response. You will either embrace the man, the Son of God, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, or you will reject him. There is no third choice. So, let's go on to the appearance of Jesus alive. Because I do want to get to the end too, because I like to end any kind of apologetic message still with application in heart, because I think that's where the rubber hits the road, right? We bring those two together, truth and love, heart and knowledge. I think those are important. The appearance of Jesus alive. This is another piece of evidence for the resurrection. And this one I'll go through rather quickly. Ah, that's not right. Oh yeah, it is. For I delivered to you, sorry, <laughs> I spoke out loud, didn't I? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See how he's referring back? He's saying this is true in accordance with the scriptures, exactly what was written. And he's referencing back, saying all of this hinges on there. And, what he, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. By the way, also to James. Remember, James was a skeptic. James became a believer that died for his faith later. Yeah. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. <laughs> you see the problem with making these claims? He's talking about eyewitnesses, most of which are still alive. It's like when we talk about the Holocaust, right? We talk about the Holocaust and the horrors and things that happened there. And there are still people that are alive. Now, there's not many anymore, but it's like he was writing, you know, 40 years ago about the Holocaust. When there were still many which are still alive. So it's hard to just make something up that has no validity or no truth to it most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to the, all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Sorry, that one gets me, because Paul's radical conversion, and what he all did to persecute the church, and how Jesus chased after him, and to rescue him, 
proving so much about the character of God, how he chases people, how he loves people, how he goes to any length to save, to make sure you have the best opportunity to make that choice, that yes or no choice. It's amazing. Anyways, it's a risky thing to claim what he's talking about. It's a risky to claim, you know, you know it's Paul and James, number one, were unbelievers until they encountered Jesus. So why would, why would those who were opposed to him, especially Paul, why would Paul, you have to factor in what makes a guy that's persecuting Christians, like he's gangbusters that way, says he encounters Jesus, turns his entire life around, loses his friends, loses his job, loses everything, and now he's going this way. Now we almost have to not lord, he's not lord, but we have to say he's either telling the truth or he's a lunatic or a liar. Does that make sense? You have to go through those same tests. Anyways. Then we saw to more than 500 brothers, there's lots of people that he appeared to. And so I'll go into an objection. And the objection is, a common one that I still see is that it's a, an, a, uh, it's a hallucination or an illusion. That's a common objection that is still out there. Again, no tell the objection isn't based on the fact that they saw him or claim that they saw him. That seems pretty validated and accurate. They now have to explain what they saw. What they saw. How did you get so many people? Like, it started with women and then moved out to, like, James. It said he appeared to James, the 12, Paul, on the road to Damascus. We have, we have those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We have the 500. It's a bunch of different groups in different locations, diverse settings, Different demographics he's appearing to that are all claiming that they saw the risen Christ. I did see one study that uh, and was written by an atheist, and this proves that it was a, an hallucination. And they said 20,000 people, a study on 20,000 people showed that 13% of them saw their loved ones after they died. 13% saw their loved ones after they died, and that proves that that's all that people were seeing here. This is not just one person or two people. This is groups of people seeing him and interacting with him. Or so they claim. All right, Jesus is not a historical figure or not just a historical figure. He is God, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and he gave his ransom. He gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. His desire is that none should perish, but that all should be raised with him and live for an eternal life with him in heaven. That's his desire. But he is coming back. And when he comes back, he will judge the living and the dead. And we will end up either in an eternity with him or in an eternity away from him in hell based on our choice. Our choice matters. So let's close this. Let's wrap this up. How do you build your life on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Because we need to respond, right? We start with that choice, but we have to respond. And so this is where I want to encourage you to make a choice. Don't put it off. You don't know how many, how many breaths are still in your own lungs. But it's not just about you. We're so individualistic. We forget that there are more people hanging on our response. What about those that you live with? Those in your family? What about your parents? Yeah, kids influenced your parents towards giving their yes. 
Don't just base your yes on how they live. Base it on your own encounter with the person of Jesus Christ and parents with your kids. Don't waste a moment. Choose today whom you will serve. Time is running out. And there's more. There's those in our extended families. There are our friends. There are coworkers, classmates. There are people out there that don't know Jesus that are waiting for you to say yes and they're waiting to see him in you. Will you embrace the man or will you, or will you reject him? The next thing is we learn to steady ourselves and I get this one, okay? So I'm going to give you just some, my own, some of the things that I work myself through. I'll kind of share from my own personal journey. Learn to steady yourself. Start with what you know is true. See, this is what happens. Something's going to happen in, in your life. And, you know, for me, I had to actually work my way through this with COVID and the church split. I did. This is exactly how I worked through it. But for you, it might be something bigger than that. Maybe it's abuse from a family member. Or maybe it's abuse that happened to a family member. I don't know sometimes which one is harder to, to reconcile. And you just don't see how God could have been good in that. Or you don't see how, how he is still in control. Like it doesn't make sense. You're one circumstance. And the problem there is we sometimes get so hyper-focused on, you know, church hurt me or people hurt me or my family hurt me or God disappointed me. We get so hyper-focused on the one problem, we lose sight of all the things that could have steadied us along our way. So start with what you know is true. I'm just gonna put this out here. Feelings and experience, by the way, this is a problem with our culture and the secular worldview. We base everything God is self and do whatever feels right. Right, follow your heart. Your feelings and experience can be a wonderful gift from the Lord. They can also be a curse, depending on if we're experiencing something good. But they are lousy at telling you what is true. If I, it doesn't matter, if I feel like I can float off of this stage, that will not change the reality of gravity. Does that make sense? Truth is truth, no matter what I feel or no matter what I think. That said, when we live by truth, we experience truth and our feelings will line up with that and it becomes wonderful. That is a good thing for us to understand. So let's work our way through here. Start with a biblical worldview. What do we know is true? Creation, God created everything, fall, redemption, restoration. So God created everything. Do we know that it's true? Does that make sense? Remember the classic argument, we've gone over here lots, the, uh, the cosmological argument. Everything that exists has a cause. The universe exists, thus the universe has a cause. And we would say that cause is God. That cause is God. It is the answer that makes by far the most sense. Today you've looked at the next one. We looked at Jesus lived, died, and rose again. There was an empty tomb and it is reasonable. The evidence says that it's true. And if that's true, I want you to think about the implications of this truth. This is how you work your way forward. I haven't gotten to that unanswered question yet. But if he created everything, and if he came here and died for your sins, and to defeat the devil and sin, and to pay our penalty, if he did those things, and he says that validates everything that's in here, that means, if it's true, God is all-powerful, he could change your circumstances if he chose to. Now you're saying he's not changing it. But it also means he's sovereign. Nothing is outside of his rule and, rule and reign. That means you can go to him. It's not that this situation is happening outside, no. But he's also proven that he's loving. He died for you and for everyone. He desires that none should perish. 
It also means that he's good. He created all things and said everything was good, but human beings sinned and brought evil into the world. And the last two things here, he is faithful, even when we are faithless. He was faithful all the way to the cross. And he is our king and judge, if these things are true. Will you choose to trust him in your one area of struggle and your situation today? Is he trustworthy? Maybe a better question will be, are you trustworthy with the truth that he has already shown you? He promises that he is working all things for ultimate good. Part of the thing we have to understand though is he's looking at the long game. Pastor Ray used to say the dot or the line. And he's encouraging us to look past the dot, look past that one thing that you are struggling with, that one struggle. Yes, it's big, I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize it, but God is looking forward to that line. And he says he is working all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Will you choose to trust him? Will you choose to give him your heart? Lastly, if he says, if he is who he says he is, will you give him your heart? Yeah, I said that one already. We'll go on to the next one. The, the last part here, learn to steady yourself. So make a choice, reject him or embrace him. Learn to steady yourself. Always get a firm foundation on what you know to be true. That's that biblical worldview. And then seek to know him for yourself. Love, serve, worship, obey, and share Jesus with everybody that is around you. That's ultimately how we get to know him. We know him in prayer, in the word, in confession. But it all starts with a basic yes, and that's where I'll get you to pull up these cards again. And this one, we're not gonna leave at the cross. It's a little fancier, you can put it in your wallet. I didn't come up with that idea on my own. In fact, John Pendergrass showed me a card that he had that was similar to this, and I thought, that's a great idea. And then Candy had already done this. Candy and Jaira had done this in the worship ministry earlier in the year. So I thought, I'm gonna pass this on to you guys, but I'm gonna give you an opportunity to give your yes. How will you respond to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the claims that he made about himself? Is there an area in your life today that you have been struggling with where you don't fully trust him? Maybe it's big. Maybe it's small. It doesn't matter. It's not about comparing with the person next to you. If it's a struggle for you, it's big for you. It could be something like your time or your rest. Whatever it is, you can fill it out now. This is a small version of that blank check yes to the Lord. Maybe you're giving your yes to him for the first time. that step of faith comes in. I think when we look at the facts, the evidence, there is an overwhelming amount of evidence and the Lord made sure that it would be that way. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence that point to the God of the Bible as being the one who created all things, who came in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, who lived 
a perfect life, died for your sins and to defeat sin and death for all eternity and rose back to life and he is now seated next to the Father in the heavenly realms. There's good reasons to believe that. But you're hearing me say it and this last step is about you now knowing him for yourself and that's where it takes faith. Will you trust him today? Will you have faith? Will you choose to embrace him? Lord Jesus, I ask that you would steady us on your truth. I ask that you would help us overcome any lies that the culture has put inside of our hearts, our experiences. Lord, there are so many questions in us and we also wanna recognize in this that we are finite beings. And there are things that we just cannot understand because we don't know what is outside of what we, what we can see and touch and smell and feel. We don't know reality beyond that. We only know the scene. But Lord, you have made sure that there is enough evidence and we can know you personally that we can also know the unseen. Lord, lead us to the cross. Lead us to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together, church.